Uh, let us turn to Zechariah, the eighth chapter. Beginning with verse 20. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, it shall come to pass that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also, yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, in those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. I said that tonight I would bring you a message on Jerusalem, 1967. And it was my privilege on Friday of this last week to walk around the streets of Jerusalem and to spend time thinking about the city as we now see it. Even in my short lifetime, I have seen some tremendous changes. It was in 1950, which would be 17 years ago, that I went to Jerusalem for the first time. And with Dr. Lambie, who was our great medical missionary there, we went about from place to place, and we reveled in seeing the things that were of the past and thinking of the things that were of the future. But at that time, it was a greatly divided city. There was the Mandelbaum Gate, and there were the big fortifications, and there were the barbed wire entanglements, and there was shooting night after night with the Arabs on one side in the old city and the Jews on the other side in the new city. And the land was in a state of perpetual, and the city was in a state of perpetual anxiety. I went back again in 1955, five years later, and things hadn't changed. It was still the same way. But when I went back on this last Friday, it is an entirely different place. So far as its present appearance and its present condition is concerned. There is no Mandelbaum gate anymore. It can't be found. It's been taken away. There are no barbed wire entanglements. There are no walls. They've all been torn down. Of course, the wall of the city still remains, the historic wall, but these walls and these barriers that had been erected, they've all been put away. And we saw a city that was united, one city. Uh, we didn't see any police officers. We didn't see any men carrying Tommy guns. We didn't see any tanks. 
We did see some uh, electric light people. We saw some telephone people installing telephones. And we saw all manner of people, many, many people, groups passing by. Companies of Jews with some leader going in one of the gates and we knew they were going over to the Wailing Wall and that's where they were going. But there was lots of activity. The signs that used to be in Arabic have been torn down. They're Hebrew now. Everything is Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrew. You can't imagine a, such a change that's taken place in one, one locality like has taken place there. The buses move back and forth with their Hebrew signs. People get on them and get off. And the city of Jerusalem, since the Six-Day War of the Hebrews, which they won, has now been united. And the Jews have moved in to take complete political and economic control of the community, which they have done. In fact, they have made it a part of what they had already possessed. In going into Jerusalem, we landed at Tel Aviv, the airport there on the Mediterranean. And we had thought it was a long distance from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, but it's not very long. You drive in an hour, an hour and a half. You move across the plains of Sharon, the rows of Sharon. And there you see the tremendous agricultural development which has taken place in the last 20 years. They've taken the deserts. they filled them with all kinds of citrus fruit, the oranges, the grapefruit and the others. Old sections have been made into cotton fields where they raise the very finest of cotton. And all their cotton picking is done by machinery. You don't see anybody at all using a, an oxen or a forked stick like you do over in the Arab side or like you do in India. They're using little tractors. And you move into the lowlands as you begin to rise toward Jerusalem, which is, of course, the highest highland, and the Mount of Olives is the highest peak in the whole area. And you find that the hills have been reforested, and they're green with trees. Twenty years of planting of trees. Their, their vineyards, where they have their grapes, and then all their figs, and then their olives. And as you see that side of the country in advance of your coming to Jerusalem, it is in complete contrast to what you find on the other side, where the Arabs have had it all these years. But the Jews have moved in with industry. They moved in with knowledge. They moved in with science. They moved in with great uh, activity and speed to develop a homeland. And it, they look upon it as the homeland. It's their land. And when you go into the city of Jerusalem as we did and recognize the tremendous change that was taking place, as one of the missionaries said to me, he says, Dr. McIntyre, there's an air of expectancy as though something is going to happen. There's an air of anticipation. There's tremendous rejoicing among all the Jews. But there is a, there is a, a, a note about everything that we're just at the threshold of something great that's going to take place. 
Now that was what I was told and undoubtedly that sentiment and that feeling is, is apparent and you can behold it. Now as I tell you about the Jerusalem of 1967, I must start with what I call the physical features. The physical features. And the reason I start with these physical features because it is the physical features of the land, the Mount of Olives, the Brook Kidron, the place called Golgotha, the skull, the garden tomb, and all of these physical features which continue to abide. They haven't changed. And they're not going to change until the Lord comes. And he brings about the complete reordering of the city. And finally, when we have the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven. But we began our little visit to the city by just walking out from the hotel where we had gone, the American colony. And it is a very lovely place that they've had for many years, run by some English people. And that's where we have stayed before. And... Uh, of course, I would say one of the best memories I have of the place is that in 1955, I was walking down one of the stone steps of that colony and tripped and fell and broke my arm. And I'll never forget that, of course. But to go out from that place, you run immediately into all the evidence of the awful war. The building just across the street was, the roof was burned out of it. The windows and lights were all knocked out. The wall was just pocketed with all sorts of bullets and uh, the munition that was used. The American colony itself had been seriously damaged. The entrance had been completely blown out and they'd repaired that. On the side of the place where you went into the living room was a big gaping hole in the wall, almost as big as this one up here on the side, which they had, passed, which they had patched up. And I talked to the gentleman who was in charge and I said, where were you when all this? He says, I was right down there on the floor. He said, we got right down here on the floor. And he said, we didn't know what was going to happen next. But just across from that American colony was this no man's land and this barrier. Of course, that's all gone now. But you walk down that same little block, not very far, and you come to a place, mark the garden too. You ring a little bell, you open the door, and here you go into this garden. And over on the left side, in the part of the big cliff there, is this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And I want you to turn with me to John, the 20th chapter. <clears throat> In fact, I, I will turn back to the 19th chapter because the garden tomb and the place called Calvary are all right within uh, 75 yards of one another. As a matter of fact, everything, so far as the physical layout is concerned, is within easy walking distance from the Mount of Olives on down to the temple, and then, of course, over to Calvary. And these are the areas where our Savior was walking, of course, during the time of his great trial. But now in verse 16 of chapter 19. Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified. This was Pilate. And they took Jesus and led him away, and he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew 
Golgotha. Now, beloved, that place of the skull is there just as clearly as anything could possibly be. You come outside the Damascus Gate, and just across from that gate is this big precipice here, and up on the side of the precipice are two big holes that look like eyes, and there is a crooked nose, and down below you've got what would you have, you would have the mouth and the chin. It is the place of a skull. And the multiplied thousands of people who walked down that Jericho Road all these centuries have seen it. There it is. You can't help but see it. It's the place of the skull. It's the most prominent place once you come outside the wall of Jerusalem. At the present time, one of the changes that's been made is that below the place of the skull, below the cliff, here's this big cliff here with this skull on it. Below it, they've turned into the central bus station in which all the buses come driving in there and you go to get on the bus and make your transfer and right there is a skull looking right over you. And where Christ was crucified was, it, uh, was there where the main thoroughfare where all the people of all these centuries would pass by and then they'd see this skull up there on the side of the wall. And then the top of the, above the face, of course, is the crest and that's a cemetery and has been a cemetery all these years and it was... On top of that place, on top of that skull, that the three crosses were erected and Jesus was crucified. And when Jesus Christ was crucified on the top of that old skull, his crucifixion there was apparent to all the people who passed by wagging their heads and all the multitudes of the people through the community that knew about this. There they saw this one who was crucified. He was crucified out where everybody could see him and this thing was not done in a corner. Now if you'll turn with me over to the gospel according to Luke in the uh, 23rd chapter and in verse 33 and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary come to the place which is called Calvary there they crucified him and if any of you have uh, uh, a uh, Schofield Bible, you'll notice a little note. And if you'll check into your uh, reference, you'll find that it says, or the skull. Or the skull. Now, Calvary means the skull. We often think of Calvary meaning just the cross. But it means this place where he was crucified, which is Calvary. In our preaching, we've come to think about Calvary, this, and we sing about Calvary. But when you sing Calvary, you're speaking about the place of the skull. This uh, picture of a man's face uh, with all the flesh taken off of it. And there's the skull, and above it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the Hebrew, it's called Golgotha. So you've got the two names, two references to this. Now will you turn, please, to the 19th chapter of John and the 41st verse. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now the place 
where he was crucified. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus. Therefore, for the Jews' preparation, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Well, now, beloved, when you go down that Jericho Road and see the place of the skull, and there's the high cliff, just on the left, the, you know, the raised ground bends around, and there's a, a lovely little garden there. And that same cliff, which has in it the skull, moves around. There's a place here for the garden. Then it turns back again to the, to the right. And there is the tomb that was hewn out. Right there. And all you need to do if you go to Jerusalem is to take your Bible and read what it says about the sepulcher being near unto the place. And in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And right there is the skull, and here is the garden, and here's the big tomb that's been hewn out. And above it is this cemetery, and this old ancient cemetery on top. And here was this tomb below that Joseph of Arimathea had. And when you look at the physical layout of Jerusalem today, you simply see exactly what the Bible says it was. Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. He, bearing his cross, went down what they call, they have this little path they can show you there, the Via Dolorosa, the Way of Sorrows. And they have there, you can go and see Eki Homo, where Pilate said, Behold the man. And then from that place, Jesus took his cross, very short distance, walked down, turned right, went out the Damascus date, right over to Golgotha, and there he was crucified. And the whole thing physically, the physical layout of the land is exactly like the Bible says. And God has preserved it that way through all these centuries. Isn't it interesting that through all these centuries and all the wars and all the devastations and all the troubles, isn't it interesting that when Titus came in in 70 A.D. and completely destroyed the city, one stone wasn't left standing on another stone. He never touched the skull. He didn't tamper with the old skull. That was just some of the old trimmings of nature up there. And he didn't hesitate to make any effort to remove that. But Titus in 70 A.D., Jerusalem was attacked at different times. 125 A.D. again it was attacked and burned. And all the destruction through the centuries and all the wars that they've had in that part of the world, the city has been ravaged, but the skull has been left there. And that little garden over at the side is still there. And you can go into that tomb. And so on Friday morning, we got up in the first place we went to start our little visit. It was just down the road and into the garden tomb. I took my little transistor radio recorder, which I had, and we began to make broadcasts out of that garden tomb. And we went right over there and in the tomb. And it says here that Peter and John, John outran Peter. And John got there first. And when Peter got there, he went in and then he saw the linen clothes. And when you come to that garden tomb, it's nothing but here's the flat wall and here's the opening. There's a little chamber on one side and the other section of it is where there's places for three bodies. They've all been hewn out. and You don't know which place the Lord's body was laid, but in one of those places the Lord's body was laid. 
And they put a little bench in there where four people can sit down. We went down and sat down where Peter, them, Peter looked in. He went in. And there they saw the linen folded up. And here was Peter and John and here was our Savior and here was Mary and the other Mary. Here were the two angels. And you could reproduce in the simplicity of that natural setting exactly what Matthew, Mark, Luke and John report for us and have recorded for us in this New Testament account. And you can fit the geography to the Bible or you can fit the Bible to the geography, whichever way you look at it. But whichever way you look at it, if you go believing that on that crest of that hill above that awful face of that skull was crucified the Son of God, and you believe that his body was taken down and the sepulcher was nearby and it was in a garden, and you believe that in this very tomb, or if that isn't the tomb, it was one there in the immediate vicinity. But here is a tomb which meets the description here. John went in it. Peter went in it. They saw what was there. That here in this area took place the greatest events of all human history. Here in this geography took place the crucifixion of the Lamb of God who came to deal with our sins. And into this tomb they took his body and then on the third day by the power of Almighty God he was raised from the dead. And in these little circumstances, this little geographical area, the great explosive power of the Spirit of God was manifest. And we have the Christian religion with its message of redemption for sinners and a regeneration which comes by faith. Well, after we went to those two places, and I think that's about the place to start if you're going to go. Some people think that's the place you ought to end up. And then you walk down the Jericho Road, and you pass the gate of Herod, and, and down to the corner of the Great Wall, and there's the Brook Kedron on the outside of the wall. The Brook Kedron. You turn to John, turn back just a little further in this Gospel according to John. The 18th chapter, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where was a garden into which he entered with his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Well, the Brook Kedron is still there. Hadn't been changed. Just down from the wall is the brook, and it runs its course. And on the other side of the brook, the hillside begins to arise. And this is the side of the hill of the Mount of Olives. And somewhere on this side is this garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was betrayed. What's interesting about that side of the hill is that there are two or three different people claim that they've got the right garden. And there's one there that's set aside, they think it's the right garden. Another group set aside, they think it's the right garden. One group says they've got older trees than the other. But whoever has the right place, I'm sure nobody knows for sure, but one thing is certain, it's from the Brook Kedron to the top of the mount. Somewhere in between there is where this garden was. And somewhere on the side of that mountain is the place where Jesus went with his disciples. And when you go to the side of that mountain and go to that place of prayer, out 
before you in the most beautiful panoramic presentation you ever saw is the city of Jerusalem. And immediately across from you is the golden gate, which is sealed. The golden gate. And you can't sit on that Mount of Olives or stand on the side of that Mount of Olives without seeing that golden gate. And that golden gate opens up directly into the area where there was the temple of Herod. There was a temple of Solomon first, Zerubbabel's temple second, and then Herod's temple during the time of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But here is this golden gate. But when you read this description here of Kedron, and a garden being on the side, and this is where Jesus frequently met with his disciples, you enter into the most marvelous experience of realizing that here was the Son of the Almighty God on this hillside with his disciples, praying with them, instructing them, teaching them, and giving unto them that which the Father had revealed through the Son that they might have for their soul salvation and for the message of redemption for mankind. Will you turn with me, please, to the first chapter of the book of Acts? And in the uh, 12th verse, Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, So that's where they were. Now let's go back a little further. And uh, beginning with the 8th verse, Jesus said, Ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, And unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were, they were come in, they went up into an upper room, And you have the story, of course, of the selection of the successor to Judas. But here is the unmistakable report that Jesus made his departure after going up to the top of the Mount of Olives, the highest spot in all that area, and in the presence of his disciples, who were witnesses of his majesty and of his glory, he left this earth and he was taken up, And after he had been taken up and they were standing there on the top of that mountain, gazing into the skies, the messengers came back from heaven and said, don't bother now. 
He's gone. You go back now. You're to be his witnesses. He told you to go back to Jerusalem and go to work. And so they left and went back to Jerusalem. And the first thing they did was to select a successor to Judas. And then Peter started his preaching. And you have, of course, the great message of Peter on the day of Pentecost. But here is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ from the top of the Mount of Olives. Now, beloved, when you look over the top of that Mount of Olives and see the great wall, you see two gates. One is the Stephen Gate on the right side, where Stephen was stoned to death. But the other is the Golden Gate, and it is the gate, of course, in which our Savior came in on Palm Sunday as he rode upon the colt, upon the foal of an ass. Now I wish you would turn with me to the prophecy of Ezekiel, it is, 44 and 46. And what is significant about this prophecy of Ezekiel is that there was no gate when Ezekiel made this prophecy. And what is significant about it is that Ezekiel is talking about the very end time and the return of the prince. And another very significant part of it is that that gate is sealed and has been sealed. And when the Jews took Jerusalem and were cleaning the place up and tearing down these, the Mandelbaum gate and removing all the debris and cleaning the place up, and it is an exceedingly clean city today, I can assure you that, they wanted to know if they shouldn't go ahead and open this gate. And the mayor of Jerusalem said that that gate would not be opened, that that gate was for the Messiah. And that was reported in the Jerusalem Post, which I've earlier mentioned here because a copy came into my hand. Now notice chapter 44 of Ezekiel. Now remember, this is almost 600 years before Christ ever came. Then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outer sanctuary, which looketh toward the east. And this is it. And it was shut. Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened. And no man shall enter by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it, therefore it shall be shut. It is for the prince, the prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go out by the way of the same. Now when you look at Jerusalem today, and here's the place of the skull. And here's the tomb in the garden. And here is the brook Kedron. And here's the garden on the side of the Mount of Olives. And here's the top of the Mount of Olives where the feet of our Lord last touched this earth and he ascended into heaven. And then you look down and remember the promises that he's going to return. And that when he returns, this gate through which he went on Palm Sunday, this gate which is to be sealed and this gate which will remain sealed until the prince himself comes to sit in it. There it stands today as a silent witness that God has a great future yet for that city. That God has some great events to take place there in Jerusalem and about the Mount of Olives. 
And beloved, as I emphasize for you tonight, the geography, the present geography of Jerusalem, it has been preserved through the centuries. Kedron and the mountain and the skull and the tomb, these things have been preserved through the centuries in order that in our day, those of us who are simple enough to believe and those of us who have the faith to accept what God has reported to us, can see the connection of the days that have passed and the ministry of the Lord and all that he accomplished for us before he went yonder into the heavens. And the present layout of that city today simply confirms everything that God has given to you and me in this blessed book. And Jesus Christ who was there walking about teaching, healing, instructing, suffering, being crucified and dying... The Lord Jesus Christ is the same Lord who now lives and reigns and for whose glorious return we as a people are anxiously praying and waiting. Now in the second place tonight I want to turn with you and discuss the things of the future. The first emphasis that I'd like to make is That as we walked about that city, and as we realized that the Lord was coming, I personally sensed a tremendous feeling of what I thought the apostles themselves must have had. When you see, here's the skull, and here's the tomb. Here's the garden, and here's the mountain, and this all took place. And then the last word they had was that this same Jesus will so come again in like manner. You have this tremendous sense of the fact that Christ is going to return. And that was in the preaching of the Apostle Paul. The very first letters that he wrote, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. The whole emphasis of the first thing that ever came from the hand hand of the inspired apostle as he wrote with his pen under the guidance of the Holy Spirit was, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. He shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And this emphasis upon the resurrection was inseparably tied to the return of Jesus Christ. And this eschatological hope, this apocalyptic confidence This glorious revelation that glory would appear, that the heavens would be opened, and that some mighty drama was yet to be enacted in this area. All of this gripped the apostles in their preaching and in the building of the New Testament church. And the New Testament church was filled with people on every hand. Once they were saved by their faith in the Messiah, their glorious hope that he would come again. And that's what the Apostle Paul said, that we who uh, were saved by his grace, that the grace of God has now appeared, 
and that it's taught us certain things, that we must presently be righteous and holy and godly in this present world, but we must look for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this emphasis of the return of Christ, which was so prominent in the New Testament preaching of the apostles and the establishment of the New Testament church, that's an emphasis that the church simply must regain. And the church must have that hope in its bosom today. I would say that after we came down from the mountain, we went over to the weeping wall, the wailing wall. And I want to say to you people that that place is entirely different from what it was 17 years ago. I was there. You walk down a little narrow place here, and here was a wall about five or six feet in between. People squeezed in there, and there were people there praying, a few people. But since the Jews have taken over, they brought in great big bulldozers, and they have removed all the houses in that area. And you've got an area there almost the size of a city block, maybe two city blocks, completely cleared away. We drove in, a place for cars to park out there, and we got out of the car. And over here on this side, there was a big bulldozer. And that bulldozer was digging down, great big thing, big shovel like we use over here, moving down, taking up whole shovels full of rock and debris and other things, taking it and piling it over here. And they were making some sort of a theater, a slanted uh, decline here as they were laying that thing out so the multitudes can come on this slanted decline and take part in the great wailing prayer services. And, of course, what they have there is some old stones lined up. And they think that they are the remains of Solomon's temple. And they could very well be. They're below the level of the surface. And in the destruction of the city, not leaving a stone upon the stone, as the Lord said. He didn't say anything about taking the stones out of the foundations. And... Undoubtedly, you have there the very stones that Solomon supervised and seeing put in there for the laying of the basis for the great temple, which was the most glorious temple of all. And I want to say to you people that I saw these Jews, I don't know how many there were, there's a great crowd of them there, finest, cleanest looking young men you ever saw. They had on their rabbinical hats, some of them, their black hats with their broad rims, had on their black robes. And I walked over there nearby, they had out their little books, black books, and I looked at their books, and every one of them had Hebrew. And here they were. They'd read that book, and they'd bow down, and they'd put their hands on the wall, and they'd bow down, and then they'd say something, and they'd all say it in the chorus together. And I listened to them, and they were praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Praying for the peace of Jerusalem. They were praying for the return of the glory of David. They were praying that someday their Messiah would come and the temple would be rebuilt and that all the hopes of Israel would be consummated. And what a different scene it is today. As these Jews move in there, they're the Orthodox Jews. They're the Jews that believe the Old Testament. It was so interesting to see them. And 
Man after man turned around and looked at me and says, you don't look like you belong here. And, and I'm sure that's what they must have thought. I wasn't dressed like they were. All I had was my little recorder in my hand and my little amplifier, and I got as close to them as I could and listened and turned it on because I wanted to get a recording of it. But it was the most interesting. See, these men look at each other. They didn't have a problem looking at each other, but when they looked at me, they said, well, where did this fellow come from? I didn't belong there. Well, I didn't. No, I didn't belong there. Because I think the Messiah has already come. And we don't need a wailing wall now. We need to believe that the Messiah has arrived and that he's coming again now with his power and great glory. And he's going to restore the glories of David because he is David's greater son, as he promised and as he said he would be. We went over to the temple site. And there, of course, you have the Dome of the Rock, as it's called. And we were able to get in. We went down in underneath. And it's believed to be, of course, Mount Moriah where Abraham brought Isaac to make his sacrifice. And the Jews believe that somewhere down underneath all that foundation is the Ark of the Covenant. They think it's still around there somewhere, and it may be. It may be. But because the Ark of the Covenant is buried down in under those foundations somewhere, the Jews are forbidden there's a great big sign over the entrance that the Jews were not allowed to come up in there. The conservative rabbinical authorities have told the Jews they can't go up in that temple square because they might accidentally be walking on the Ark of the Covenant. And so they don't go up in there because of that. But here on the place where Solomon's temple was built is the mosque of Omar. The Mohammedans have had it. The Mohammedans did have it all these centuries. Now the Jews have it. And one of the interesting questions before everybody is, are the Jews going to rebuild the temple? Well, when you get Ezekiel's temple here, sometime or other, Ezekiel's temple is going to be rebuilt. But is it going to be rebuilt before the rapture and the Lord takes us out? Or is it going to be built after the rapture and after the Lord takes us out? That's the question. But what was most interesting about it all is that when Time Magazine, reported that the Jews now have it. The Jews possess it. It's theirs. And beloved, when you see what they have done to that city and the way they're changing that city and the way they've cleaned things out for the Wailing Wall, don't you think for one minute that these Jews will ever give that place up? They will never, never give that city up. They're going to die for that city. That is the fullness of all that they've ever dreamed and hoped for, that they could get back and have possession of the city of Jerusalem. And they now possess it, and they possess it in good order. It's, they've been cleaned up. It's a delightful place. It's, it's, you just can't imagine the change that's taking place. But, beloved, the question is, when are they going to rebuild that temple? And in the problem which is before them, the mosque of Omar sits on the spot where they ought to rebuild their temple. And how in the world would they ever get rid of the mosque of Omar without inciting the wrath of all the Mohammedan world, which includes Nasser? How in the world would they ever get rid of the mosque of Omar so they could rebuild their temple? And it looks like a very difficult problem. But what was interesting about it all is that Time magazine in the report of this said that it might be that an earthquake would destroy the mosque. Now, if you look here in the New Testament, there are going to be a number of earthquakes. 
The Bible says there are going to be a number of earthquakes. As just as to when their locations of these earthquakes are going to be, probably at different times. But if you'll, if you'll notice in this passage where the Lord comes back, turn over to Zechariah, the 14th chapter. <clears throat> There's going to be a pretty big earthquake at this time. And in verse 4 we read, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the west, no, on the east. The geography of this book is perfect. And Howard Carlson, our missionary, has been over there for two years, who drove us around, he says, You know, Dr. McIntyre, he says, These Jews, when they want to find out the location of anything, when these archaeologists and these men come in here to work, he says, They always go to the Bible to find it out. The Bible is their guide when it comes to the location of these various places. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall be removed toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountain, for the valley of the mountain shall reach unto Azel, Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee will be there when that great earthquake takes place. But there are going to be some earthquakes. And one of the signs of the latter days is that there shall be earthquakes in divers places. Now, while I was studying this question of the, earth, of the earthquakes flying in one of these planes the other day, I ran into something that I had not seen before and which, as far as I'm concerned, is a very wonderful revelation. And will you turn to the 16th chapter of the book of Revelation? And in the 16th chapter of the book of Revelation, you have here the outpouring of the seventh vial during the tribulation period. And may I read beginning with the 17th verse. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Did you ever hear anybody tell you that the world was going to be destroyed by atomic bombs? Did you ever hear anybody preach this fear line that we've got to be careful, we'll have our cities all annihilated by atomic bombs? That we're going to get into some kind of a war with Russia and everything will be, the earth will be completely annihilated by the atomic bombs? No, beloved, that's not going to happen. This says that in that tribulation period, God's going to send the greatest earthquake that the world has ever known. And when that earthquake hits this old earth, the cities of the nations will fall. And if you want to see the time when the skyscrapers in Philadelphia begin to crumble and collapse and fall like tin pins... If you want to see the time when the skyscrapers and the mighty buildings of New York City will collapse and fold up like little paper houses, you wait until the day of this earthquake. That's described here at the close of the awful time of tribulation. 
and God will send an earthquake and it will be so great that the cities of the nations will fall. And notice what else we read here. And a great Babylon, and great Babylon came in remembrance before the Lord to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. The islands are just going to vanish. They'll just sink into the sea and that'll be the end of them. And these whole mountains are going to shake and they're going to tremble. And beloved, no wonder the Lord says, flee that day of wrath. Don't weep for yourselves, ladies. Weep, weep for this day when the wrath of God will fall upon this earth. For the judgment of the nations will come. And this time when the earth will tremble and the cities which are the glory of men will collapse and crumble and they will fall. Oh, there's expectancy in the air, beloved. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And tonight Jerusalem is in Hebrew hands. Jerusalem has Hebrew written over the entrances of the doors and the ads in the papers and the signs on the streets. And if you want to buy a newspaper, here's a Hebrew newspaper and here are the signs. The taxi has a Hebrew on top of it. The, the cars, the buses have the Hebrews and they have the numbers in the Hebrews as to what bus it is. And back and forth across that city, the city of Jerusalem, the Jews have moved in and they have municipal control. They have civil authority and they possess the city of Jerusalem tonight and God said this city shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled and beloved if you'll go to the garden and then see the garden if you'll go to Golgotha and see the skull if you'll go to the brook Kedron and see it's still called by that name and look at the site of the Mount of Olives and see that that's the place where our Savior met with his disciples and he taught them and go to the top of the Mount of Olives and see the place in that vicinity where his feet last touched the earth and remember the Lord says his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives and remember that he's coming the second time not as a savior. He's coming as the judge of the nations. He's coming to tread a winepress of fierceness and wrath. And he's going to deal with the iniquity of men who will not repent and put their trust in him. And when he comes, beloved, it will indeed be the greatest moment of all the accumulations of history. And when you read these passages, and we see these Jews going back to Palestine. They're going back in unbelief, just as the Bible says. And all about them, there they are, working, trying to build a nice land. It's their land. But they do not believe that Jesus was their Messiah. And they've gone black in the darkness of that unbelief. But they're going back, and you think of the Jews as I saw so many of them there about that city. And the Bible says that when the Lord does come and the nations are encamped about them, and wasn't it interesting this past week that the United Nations unanimously through its council made this pronouncement that they should give back their lands to Nasser, 
Wasn't that interesting? All the nations of the world, here they were. And the day is coming when they'll all be encamped about Jerusalem. And in that mighty hour of their last moment of extremity, there will come a deliverer out of Zion. And when they see Jesus Christ glorified and they behold him, and he says here in Zechariah, they'll say, What meaneth the wound prince in his hands? And he will come back and he will say, They are the wounds that I received in the house of my friend. And they shall weep and they shall wail and they shall lament because they will recognize without any doubt that this is the true one and for 2,000 years they have been wrong. For 2,000 years they have rejected the true Messiah and here they see him and they behold him and he's come to deliver them and then he'll set up his kingdom and he'll rule from Jerusalem And then in that day, what will they say? Let's go up to Jerusalem. Ten men will take hold of a Jew and say, Here, we want to go up to Jerusalem. We understand that the Lord is with thee. And he was. Beloved, I've come back from Jerusalem. I've had that blessed experience of going over those historical days and seeing these things together. And all it does to me is to confirm my faith. But they tell me that some people go there and it's so, there's nothing to it but a little creek, nothing to it but an old cave in the wall, nothing to it but some disfigured over there on the side of a mountain they called a skull. And there's some story about him praying over there in the hill. I'm not going to believe that stuff. And some go and scoff, but others go and believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. And by his death and his death alone, he brought us to the Father. And believing, we have life eternal. And you must believe. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank thee for the description of the geography of the tomb and of Calvary and of Olivet. God bless this message to our hearts tonight. And oh, Father, strengthen our faith for the battle of our day. We know that no atomic bomb is going to destroy our cities. Thou hast told us that an earthquake will do it when the time comes. And we know, God, that Jesus has all power in heaven and earth in his keeping. And he's able to keep us. He's able to take care of our radio. He's able to deliver us from our trials in WXUR. He's able to build a great college for us at Shelton. He's able to give us $400,000 now at Christmas. Lord, give us the desires of our hearts. We believe that thou art the one who stood on the Mount of Olives and ascended into heaven. Bless us now for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, didn't I tell you I'd get a greater blessing out of this than you did? Well, I did. And I know that, so you can't challenge it. Hymn number 188. Only trust it.
tonight that isn't saved? Is anyone here tonight that doesn't trust the Lord? I've given you the gospel. Just as straight and clear and it's tied in with Jerusalem and all these holy places. And we have it here. The trust that God's given us. And I beseech you, beloved. I, I urge you to put your trust in this Christ and be saved. Let him make a new creature out of you, young man. He'll do it. And he's the only one who can do it. And is there anyone, there are visitors here, there are some strangers here. Maybe some of you in some of these modernistic churches. Beloved, please get out of them. Don't stay in them any longer. Don't be a part of this thing. Come and stand up with the people of God and let God bring you some blessings and he'll do it. But is there anyone here tonight that isn't saved and wants to accept the Lord? Tonight's the time to do it. This moment is the accepted time to believe in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Our Father, the gospel's been so glorious tonight and we know that Christ died and rose again and that we have this message to preach to sinners. And Lord, if there's a single soul here tonight who isn't saved, give them faith to believe and to trust the Lord. Give them faith to come to Christ and fully believe that he is the son of God God bless our our faith and now if there's anyone tonight that wants to accept the Lord I give you the invitation I give you the opportunity you say yes Lord I believe that you died for me you were here 2,000 years ago and I accept this gospel message I believe it I'm a sinner I know it I ask you to forgive me and I'll trust you Will you lift your hand? Some of you men here tonight that aren't right with the Lord, will you come and trust the Lord tonight? Will you come? There's some of you here tonight that have been out of the church for years. You've never come back into the house of God. I want you to come back. I want you to come back to the house of God. Is there anyone tonight that says, yes, Lord, I believe, and I'll acknowledge you tonight as my Savior, and here I am, Lord, from now on I'm going to serve you by your grace. Will you lift your hand? Is there someone tonight, someone, any hand, anywhere, for a decision? And now, Father, we commit the service to thee, And oh, may the word tonight carry its blessings. And now help us, Father, as we go out to make the appeal across the country. Be with our broadcast tomorrow morning. Prepare us for it. And give us the $400,000 for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.